Can you read it again, Donna? <laughs> Please. The shame of motives late revealed and the awareness of things ill done and done to others' harm, which once you took for exercise of virtue. We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all of our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Can you say why you like those? No. Please. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Come on, just take a second here. I guess the first one speaks to guilt that I have, um, being a woman looking back, um, and um, the second one um, to me is, is just, um, it's just an expression of hope. I wish we had more time to do this, but we don't. Which, which she also said, she didn't say what she just said at the table. What she said at the first one was that it was such a tremendous revelation, the, the depth of it, to, to see. How many of us look back on our lives with that kind of insight and see that the things that we prided ourselves on, we thought we were doing out of good motives. In retrospect, we look back at them and realize that there was so much more going on that we didn't realize at the time it was not so good. Um, and after we got up from the table and I was thinking about that, I was, I hope, I hope everybody's beginning to realize this now, if, you, if you've not thought about poetry before. Imagine somebody like Eliot struggling. The, the inner life of man is obscure. I take it for granted that everybody knows that. Men particularly have, it's a great paradox here. Men are, are notorious for not being able to express their emotions. At least that's the no, I have a little slightly different take. It's interesting that most of the great poets are men. Um, but our, the inner life of man is obscure. By man, I mean man and woman. Our emotional life is obscure to all of us. I think most of us have a hard time trying to bring clarity to our emotions. They're so dense. They're so obscure. Imagine the life of a poet, Eliot, who, who spent his life with poetry, writing, trying to find words to make sense of that inner life. If that isn't close to sainthood, I don't know what it is. Because most of us take that for granted. We just think about the personal discipline that that takes and the courage that it takes to go there and to give a meaning to it. What it would have taken for Dante to write and in exile. And it's just, it's clear to me he could never have done that outside of it, at home. It was only because he was in exile that he'd lost everything. But imagine the struggle that he would have had to go through to, to see that from the perspective of God, to, to bring something prophetic to that experience. So when we were at the table and she said it was just an amazing revelation, and I thought, true, and, and how much we, or how easy it is to take that for granted. Um, but try to imagine the life of a poet struggling with this always in a way that lots of poets in the modern world kill themselves. I mean, I know you could all find musicians. Um, Dan was making that. I, I hadn't even put it together with musicians that far. Most poets live on thresholds. 
They're on the board, they're on the margins of our world. They're like prophets in the wilderness, the voices in the wilderness. They're speaking things that people don't want to hear. So they live in an isolated condition. Lots of poets kill themselves in that isolation. So what we're talking about here is not something easy to, to go into those depths and try to bring some clarity to them. It's introspection. Yeah, but, but not leaving it there. It's, it's always an introspection that is introspection that's communicated, that is, that is given a form so it's objectified. It's, it, and, it's, and it's never a diary. This is never just personal. A poet is never just emoting, ever. He's, he's always trying to, to do something with it that transforms it into the condition of an art that, that, that is, has, some, some, has something of the nature of a revelation. Like the, you know, the, particularly the first quote that, that Doc was reading about motives looking back and you know, how in time we, we come to see that so much that we did thinking we were really good and virtuous <laughs> doesn't bear looking at in that light. But. Back of introspection. Okay, let's, let's go. Let's start. I want to try to do this really quickly. Um, we've talked about Beatrice as a Christ bearer. Um, we don't we don't have time to go back over, but I'm gonna I'm gonna just mention some names. Um, Beatrice is coming from God. Remember, she has come to the earthly paradise to receive him and to be his guide up the stages of paradise. And um, what we learn by staying with them is that at each stage she becomes brighter more effulgent, more radiant with life, and, and we get closer to seeing her real nature when she's with God. She does that in, in order to help Dante accustom his eyes because it's a spiritual journey. He, 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 none of us can make the, Which one of us can stand in the presence of God who wouldn't have our eyes blasted by seeing him in his beauty? The, the light, if, the, if we can't even look at the sun, how in the world would we look at could, could we look at its creator? So she's a Christ bearer, and she's revealing Christ at different stages of Dante's spiritual development. Set her next to Francisca. I read those passages last week. Remember when Francisca said, "If the King of the Universe were friendly to me," she's blaming God. Picarda says, "We um, how did she put it?" But. Um, to do anything against the king's will would be to go against everything in our nature. Both of them use king. She's saying um, her, her, her peace is in his will. Francesca is saying, if you were a friend of us, we wouldn't be here. So we have an image of a woman who's blaming um, with Francesca. Thias, remember, is in the level of the flatterers at the bottom of, of the, or in the, one of the first rounds of the, of the canto, I mean, the circle nine. And remember, she's a prostitute, and one of her customers comes to her to ask how he did, and she said, oh, you did great. She's not there for prostitution. She's there for flattery because she, she's dishonest. She's manipulating him. She wants him to come back. So she's saying things that aren't true to get him to return. 
Sapia, and the level of the envious in the Purgatorio, Sapia, ironically, is wisdom. She's the one with um, Guido Dolduccio. He's the one who talked about um, partnership in giving, the level of the envious. Remember, he said, the trouble with us is that we put our desires on material things. And the, the difficulty of the encounter is that the more there are loving those things, the less we have. If we put our minds and our hearts on eternal things, the more there were wanting them, the greater the abundance of love and light. In that same canto, Sapia described her envy of the town and the pleasure she took when the townspeople were routed. Because she didn't like it that they had things that she didn't. And Picarda, who's in heaven, remember, um, who um, who broke her vows. And we went through that last week. I, I, I want to come back to that in a second. But set Beatrice next to those feminine figures. Beatrice is different in one respect. And we'll see this later. When Dante turns away from her, he says she didn't care um, because she was there to bring him to God. So she's there to serve him. She has only one purpose. She's not there for herself. Um, she's there to help him see what love is by what she can do to answer his questions and to embody that in herself in the journey. So she is a Christ bearer. Um, she brings her love of another and makes that the goal of everything she does. She's a servant. She's bringing him to God. On page, or on page 378 and 384, just very briefly, um, at the top, or at the bottom of page 378. Now, for the good of sinners in your world, observe the cherry well, and what you see, put into writing. This is the first commissioning of Dante to write this poem. And it's repeated again on page 384, at the top of 384. And when you write, be sure that you describe the sad condition of the tree you saw despoiled, not once but twice, here on this spot. This is his calling. If he didn't have it from Virgil, he's got it from Beatrice. And, and think about this. Every one of the epic heroes we've seen, we've encountered, has had a divinely appointed task. The gods gave the hero something to do, whether it was Achilles or Odysseus or Aeneas. Here's Dante. He's not going into battle to fight with swords or arms. He's going to write. His calling is poetry. And if, if we take Beatrice at her word, there's going to be a prophetic element because he's going to be revealing what God has revealed to him. So if we were in doubt about it before, this should reassure us that in some sense, um, I mean, we may, we may call Dante nuts and he's mad and a liar, but on one level, he sees that what he's doing is prophetic. Along those lines, just in case there's any skepticism here, remember for all of us, the baptismal vow for us is that um, once we're baptized, we become priests, prophets, kings. All of us, all of us, all of us, all of us, all of us are supposed to be prophetic. We are supposed to bring God's truth to what we do, particularly where it's not wanted. So it's, it, Dante's not doing anything outlandish here in one sense. He's just stepping forward and boldly what we're all asked to do in our baptism. Um, the scheme... Remember, um, 
that in the first heavens, the moon, the mercury, and Venus, and the sun, what were shown are people who had deficiencies in virtues. Um, I can't say enough about this. I've been, I've been repeating this since we, particularly since we came to the shores of purgatory. Dante is the great poet of freedom. He's the great poet of freedom. What makes him great is he's so honest about the cost of that freedom. That God gave us a free will and we're, we're called to be responsible for our actions, to take responsibility for them. So the cost of that freedom is tremendous. And in what he's shown us is that we have to take up our sins and I'm trusting that everybody knows how difficult that, that is. Um, what we see in the first heavens are souls who are still in heaven. They are perfectly happy, but their happiness is um, in proportion to the degree of merit they earned in whatever struggles they took off in life. Took on in life. What we saw in the in the canto with um, um, Picarda was that she and Constant were um, um, taken by force by men and forced to give up their vows, but Beatrice answers that and she, with that distinction that she makes between the relative will and the absolute will, that the, the failure in their case was that they didn't completely resist. And by that, what's meant is, I think, martyrdom, because they give the example of St. Lawrence, who put his hand in the fire. That all of us have a choice. They chose to spare their lives, and in, const in constant case, she was married, but she never gave up in her heart her vow to God. Beatrice called that the absolute will. So even though she, she was out of the convent and taken by force, um, she, she continued in her heart to hold on to her vow. Um, so it's important to remember that one, Dante's always, this is sort of amazing, particularly when I think about what the Protestant mind in America does and it's, and the way the modern Catholic, I think, is infected by it. The Protestant mind is black and white. You're, you're damned or saved. Dante's showing us everywhere that there are degrees of virtue, that all of us are called to be virtues. Though all of the heavens are defined in terms of virtue. The first three heavens show us deficiencies in virtue. The next four show us perfections in those virtues. We will see them. So in the moon, we saw the deficiencies in fortitude. In Mercury, Mercury we saw the deficiencies in justice. In Venus, we saw the deficiencies in temperance. It's interesting that there's no deficiencies in wisdom. I mean, Dante's saying, if you're wise, you're wise. <laughs> it, um, it's, it's really interesting, because all of these are, are more centered in the will. Fortitude is learning to hang on when things get tough. Justice is trying to be just to somebody when it asks us to be, to mind our business, to do what's good within ourselves in order to be just to other people. Um, temperance means learning to restrain ourselves with respect to those earthly goods that we want so much, drinking, food, sex. Um, so um, what, what Dante is showing us is that um, all of us are called to be virtuous in the same way that he showed us in the Inferno, in the contrapassos, remember the contrapassos, that each one of the souls had its own particular contrapasso, so that in the, for example, in the level of the lustful, 
Francisca and Paolo were blown about by winds because that was um, an image of the lust in which they've chosen to keep themselves eternally. That's their condition. It's an example of the lust. They're suffering the effects of their sins. That's what they've chosen. Every, every sin had its own contrapasso, its own effect. What Dante's showing us is the same thing a doctor would show us if he were um, treating a disease. He's looking at our nature and, and learning things from causes and effects. If we do this, this will be the effect. If we eat too much, this will be the effect. If we have too much sex, if, if we're too envious, too negative, at the expense of seeing the good, this will be the effect. Yes? And in the purgatorio, every one of those things was answered, being answered. So in the, in the Paradiso, it's no wonder that whole scheme is carried through. Why? Because we have a nature. So the, the souls in heaven, none of them is less than perfectly happy. But each one of them is happy in degree to the perfection that, that they came to through their struggles in this life. We are, what Dante's showing us, what a church asks of us, is we, we hear it in the Mass all the time, to master our pride, to master our sinfulness. We are responsible for ourselves. And the, one of the awful things is that we live in a world in which so much is done to take that responsibility off of us. Um, Eliot's line in the poem that I just read about evolution, a way of disowning the past, if we believe in evolution, um, it, it's much easier to believe we're not responsible for ourselves. We're just a product of these forces. There's so much going on in our world that flies in the face of that. Not for Dante. Um, the body is transhumanized. We, we enter a different time and space. We're going to see that more and more as we go along, but we can't, we can't judge things in in terms of time and space as we ordinarily use those categories. Um, and finally, um, Dante's epic vision. I, I just touched on this briefly, but I want to take a minute with it here and I want to read this passage because it, it's so important. I've said before that the epic as a genre it is always tends to be encyclopedic. Homer's called the educator of his world. There was almost nothing in the Iliad and the Odyssey that, that didn't show the whole of life, all of it. You learned about all the important things. Um, that vision gets focused in the city with Virgil, but it, it's still encyclopedic. It's a cosmic view of the world. That's certainly true of Dante. But here's, here's the point I want to make. It was 400 years after the war before somebody could tell the story to do it justice. The Trojan War took place in 1200. Homer writes in eight, about 750-800. Virgil's writing the Aeneid in the first century. 800 years passes before we get another epic poet. Yeah? Dante's writing sometime around 1301, probably a little bit after, but he, his exile's in 1301, and he's talking about people are prophesizing it in the, that he meets you know, when it hasn't occurred yet. So it's, he probably started writing this shortly after this, until the end of his life. But 1,300 years pass. That's how rare the epic is. That's how rare. I mean, it's not like novels, hundreds of thousands printed every day that come off the press, you know? 
people push out novels like they're nothing. Here's what Dante's doing that's in keeping with this epic vision. And we've talked about this briefly. In the Paradiso, um, he's going far beyond the kind of knowledge that Virgil gave him. Beatrice is bringing a supernatural knowledge to everything that's temporal, because remember, we're still in the heavens. We haven't left time and space as we know it, right? We're in, we're in the universe, not outside of it. At the very end of the Paradiso, we will step outside of time. That's going to be an amazing. What Dante does with that is just startling. But we're still in time, even though he's having to do strange things. Bodies are entering bodies. They're flying faster than light. So Dante's asking us to... He's shaking up our time-space categories. But, but Beatrice has come from God. So there's nothing that she does that doesn't that doesn't take the form of an explanation of first causes as they bear on secondary causes. I want to read this passage to make this clear because this is so abstract in the moment. Um, think about what scientists do today. We've got theories about atoms. And for the most part, the, 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 the most popular, most accepted understanding of atoms, in, as I, in my reading of physics, is that there are these autonomous sort of things, that atoms um, exist independently, autonomously. Um, human beings are take on something of that nature. We're isolated from one another. That's a, those are typical characteristics of our worldview today. But there are very few who can go to a first cause. We don't find physicists going to first principles. When they get to first principles, it's a black hole. Because to go to first principles means to go to metaphysics, not the material world. And metaphysics was denied, rejected in the 19th century. That's a turning point for us in the way we look at things. The, 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 the curriculum until the 19th century was history and all, all the other fields, and natural philosophy. And natural philosophy was seen as a prelude to physics and metaphysics. Metaphysics is out right now. We live in a materialistic-oriented, empiricist worldview. And that means, for the most part, scientists generally cannot go to first principles. They cannot go. Now, I want you to just hold on to that for a second, because if you, if you, if you can see that, you can see that Dante is attempting to do something really amazing. There's nothing that goes on here that isn't explained in terms of its relation to the first cause. What's the first cause? God. We live in a world of secondary causes. That's the way God created. He created a universe separate from him. It's governed by contingencies. There's a lot that's determined. We know that. You know, trees have a determined nature. Humans have a partly determined nature, DNA, or we couldn't, we couldn't apply sciences to our own lives. There's a lot that's determined. It is that way by necessity. It can't be other than it is. Otherwise, there'd be no sciences because science deals with what can't be other than it is. It's a law. This is so. DNA. I mean, it's probably the best example. There's nothing that she does that doesn't attempt to explain everything here in terms that take us to a first cause. And what, we're, what we learn as we move through the Paradiso is there's nothing going on in the universe that doesn't involve God. Now, how far away is that from modern physics? 
One of the reasons I grieve about this, I don't, I mean, you, I may be complaining again, I, I don't know if I did it on Monday night. 800 years, 400 years from the war, 800 before another epic, 1300 years before another. Will a time ever come that some poet is such a genius that he can take an understanding of modern physics and, and, and put it in the context of first principles the way, the way the poets have done. Is that clear? How hard is that? To have that kind of command of language and knowledge of first principles? So what Dante's doing is not an accident. Remember, Beatrice has come from God. Remember, I've I, I mentioned this before. How reflective are modern Catholics? I don't, think, I don't think we expected to know modern physics to be a Catholic. But how many of us can make a defense of God's presence in our world today? Could anybody make a defense? Could anybody give it any explanation of how he's present? Everything that Beatrice is doing is along that line. Wait, let, wait. When she, when she does the first, I mean, take, take everything that happens here. Moonspots, Picard, Justinian. I don't want to come back to this in a second. The moonspots, she says, cannot be explained in terms of their density or rarity. That is, in term, just in terms of their material properties. That is, isolated, autonomous. Her explanation makes it possible to see that there's something behind it that goes to God. So she's relating... A, a theory of physics about moon spots to a first principle. The breaking of the vows has to be seen in relation to God. They made a vow. They made a promise to God. They could not take that. That's the argument. Once you've given your will up to him, you cannot take it back. So they became deficient in a way in their wills. They're still in heaven, but it shows that something was lost in their wills. Justinian um, Justinian was deficient. Remember, he, he didn't believe in the dual nature of Christ and eventually became converted. But in him we learn some about the deficiency there, but it's in this canto that we get outlined God's justice, and I want to come back to that in a minute. Um, and then in Charles Martel, in canto 8, we get, um, we get Charles Martel's explanation of, of heritage, of inheritance. And what he makes clear, I, I, just let me point you to the passage because we don't have time to look at it, but um, on page 437, the, the argument that he's making is that too often parents push their kids to do something that they're not, that they don't have a proclivity, that they don't have an inclination towards, that, that they don't have it by nature. On page 436, he gives all these examples of, of, of individuals within a family who end up doing very different things because they're very different. Um, the, 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 the lines here are on 437. The good that moves and satisfies the realm that you now climb endows those mighty orbs with the power of his own providence. And in that one mind, perfect in itself, there is foreseen not only every type of nature, but the proper goal for each. Thus, when this bow bends, the arrow shot speeds ready to a predetermined end, a shaft expertly aimed to strike its mark. Every human being is made with a different... We, we all have the same nature in general. We're human beings. 
Well, we all have different proclivities. There's something different about each faculties, temperaments. Um, 438, he says, if we didn't have this, everything would be chaos, which is the modern view of things. Um, at the bottom, 438, for nature in its circling stamps its seal on mortal wax, perfecting her fine art. Nature couldn't do this if God hadn't intended it. And then he concludes, should nat- at the 439, should, nat- should natural disposition find itself not in accord with fortune, then it must fail as a seed in alien soil must die. If men and earth were to pay greater heed to the foundation nature has laid down and build on that, they would build better men. But those men bent to wear the sword, you, you twist into the, that is, you make a man fitted to be a soldier and make him become a priest, and you make a king out of a man whose calling was to preach, make a political leader out of a man who really should have been from the priesthood, you find yourselves on roads not meant for you. Think about how, how serious this is in our time, because we live in a worldview that virtually denies nature. We don't have a nature. We can make whatever we want of ourselves. We can change our sex. We can do anything we want. There's no nature. If there's no nature, what frames of reference do we have for guiding us at all? And what does a parent look to? So what Dante's been doing in every, in every instance is trying to relate a great variety of problems that we face here on Earth to an ultimate cause. It's his way of showing that we don't live in a world in which God is disconnected or on the other side of the universe, or this is a God who is immediately involved in our lives, um, who's at work, who's given us a nature. One of the, you know, this thing about priests when they go into the seminary of going through long periods of discernment, that's not an accident. It's trying to help men and in the feminine women who, who go through an equally long period to give them time to discern because there's so much you have to learn about yourself before you can make that first vow. You know? um, so however disconnected all these, these opening cantos may seem, they're not. They're all... They're, they're all efforts to show that what goes on in our world involves these supernatural realities. And there's no way Virgil could have done this. Beatrice does this because she's in the presence of that first cause. John Paul's fide ratio, remember faith and reason? The whole call of our church is to bring faith and reason together. Beatrice is doing everything she can to use her intelligence to show the connection between these first causes and everything down here that seems so disconnected. Because not to see that that leaves most of us in a sense of disconnectedness, that we're in this fragmented world, we don't know what the hell to do with ourselves, where we're going, what's going on, the meaning of things. What Dante is showing is there is this coherence. This is a very different worldview from the one we live in. If you can hold off, but I don't know, because I'm going to leave it to you if you really... I'll hold off. Because I'm, actually, I'm afraid of it. (laughs) 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 But I'm going to leave it up to you. I'll wait, I'll wait. Will you wait? My debt to Bob is growing. No, that's okay. We can take a couple of minutes, because I'm going to turn to... You sure? I know. We want to hear it. Well, no, I just, uh, you I, always have these great questions. 
Well, it's just, it's Don't just, listen to her. She's just a troublemaker. God, she's like you. She encourages him. Right. Yes. There you go. She, well, she does the like, same yeah. thing. Well, just, you know, it, it's... There, there, I guess there, there are two things I mean, that, 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 that always astound me, okay, with regard to... If you stand at a waterfall and you see this water pouring over this, this thing, and you, you think about it, I mean, it's, this water is running out to the ocean, and basically it, it's a continuous flow. And if there's anything that's close to perpetual motion, in reality, in nature, this is it. Because it restores itself via the process of whatever is happening in the world. And, and it's doing work, and it's accomplishing things. I mean, moving mountains, taking... People mm -hmm. don't even realize what, it, what it's really accomplishing. But, so to me, I mean, you, you raise this issue with regard to a first cause. Is there a first cause in the aspect of seeing a river flow? with regard to its recycling nature, its recycling cameo. This water comes from someplace else, and it just continues to flow. I mean, you stand at Niagara Falls and you watch that water, I mean, this column of water just going over the edge, this huge, huge volume, and it's just, it brings it, brings it to mind. But the same go around. It's, it's the aspect that it's everywhere, though, when you start looking at it. But our problem is in hey, the world. This perpetual motion and things. Well, in, is that in, in, a, in, a, in a way, yes. Yeah. Because, but what we've done is that we've, we see this nature, we've set aside these, these, these parks, these, these, these beautiful parks. I mean, whether you go to Monument Valley or, or uh, uh, up in the Sierras or whatever, wherever it might be. Someone has set them aside, but no one goes there with the aspect of they, it's a place to enjoy. It's a place. It's like it's it's nature's Disneyland, basically. Yeah, it's true. So without, true. Without the concept of yes, because we haven't really bridged this gap of this. Or look at nature with or wonder anymore. So, yeah. Okay. yeah. Logos. <laughs> well, you could say that. Yes. Yeah. Let, we've got to. We've got to go. I, let me just. Let me offer. A, I, I, I want to get. We've got to cover this because um, yeah. we just don't have time. But let me no, offer ahead. a quick thought. Um, one is. This is Thomas's argument. It's in, it's in the opening of the Summa. Um, um, one of the definitions of nature is move, is motion and change. I know you know that. Um, and in, in your example, it's interesting because you took an example in which there are all sorts of other causes that enter into what you're describing. The snow falling on a mountain that comes down and gravity itself. So there's two other elements that you have to include in what you describe as, as a perpetual motion. So. You already there were already two other contributing motions to that that qualify anybody using the term perpetual motion because it's not take those other two things away gravity and snow and yeah. and you don't have it right Saint Thomas said with with respect to this motion um, every motion sets in motion another thing so you have to go back to a first mover or you go on ad infinitum and you have no explanation. And that first mover they called God. And let me just say this, Bob, because it's, it's interesting. I'm, I, right now, I don't want to defend this, the natural philosophy aspect of Dante, although to me it's tremendous. And I don't want to try to defend the scientific aspects of it, even though I'm amazed at the scientific clarity of his mind. What I do want to defend is this. Dante's attempting to use reason in the best way that he can 
to account for things here on earth in relation to a first cause. And in doing that, he's doing something important because that's something we don't do today. And one of the reasons we don't is because we don't look at nature anymore. I mean, your description was really, you know, we, we don't. We just, we, we take it so for granted. The, the city that we're looking at is in, in Dry Salvages. Um, the, you know, we get to a point where we ignore the river. It's not... By the dwellers in cities, ever, however, implacable keeping its seasons, rages, destroy, a reminder, it can be the waterfall, of what men choose to forget, unhonored and propitiated by worshippers of the machine, that we impose over nature this mechanized, whatever, however you want to describe this world, that makes, us easier, makes it easier for us to go around as if we've got control of nature and we can accomplish all these things. The poem goes on to talk about it, the, the bailing, that we've got this purpose, we keep doing it. Um, so what, that's our world. What Dante's doing is attempting to, to relate to the things of our world, but in a way that can show that all aspects, scientific, philosophic, domestic, it just does not matter, all have a first cause. And we don't think in those terms anymore. So what, excuse me, one of the, at least interesting things for me here, bringing this to you, you know, working with you guys, is to put that out to you, to, to make us aware. Because remember I said, I've been saying for the last month and a half, we're not very reflective today. The, the sciences have isolated us. They don't connect us to first causes. We can't get there. We're, we're in a, a materialistically oriented world. The metaphysics is beyond us. And let me leave it there, because I, and, and, and by the way, my rec and I know, I mean, not, I'd be surprised if any of you, you took me up in this. One of the first things that I did when I, when I started graduate school at UCA, UCLA, when I, when I spent most of my time on the tennis court, <laughs> I've already made that confession here. It just embarrasses me, but that's what I did. I'm not even going to tell you, but um, I went out, I had a book scholarship, and out of greed, out of greed, it was not the earnestness of a young man who wanted to learn. It was out of vanity. The principles you look back on and out of good. I bought a copy of Aristotle's collected works because I'd heard so much about him. St. Thomas was eventually one of those men, but I mean, the older I got, the more I took those men seriously. Reading Aristotle's metaphysics, anybody, anybody who has the daring to do that, is, is going to take you far beyond what most modern scientists will do with the kind of knowledge they have. And it's interesting because really good flight, I'm thinking about Jacques Maritain, probably the most important in our time, has done an amazing job in, as, a, as, a, as a political, as a philosopher, in connecting Aristotle and Thomas and, with modern physics and, and made the point that so many of the principles that are, are in Aristotle that scientists do not even know today are actually compatible with so much of what's going on in nuclear physics. You know? So I, I don't want to push this. I don't want to take up the time. My, the point I want to make for the, our purposes here is just this. That Dante is showing us over and over again that there is a nature that we can learn if we become aware of the nature that we have to look at things in terms of causes and effects and to take them back to first causes. That's a tough, anybody who's ever struggled with it, 
dealing with material causes is relatively easy. To try to take those things to first principles, to the ultimate causes, is always hard. Because all things come from first causes. Our answer to that is black hole. As if that, as if that's, I mean, that to me is, is as mythic as what the Greeks did in, in the pagan time. It's a little bit like saying water coming out of a glass that's not there. That's the modern understanding of which is more thinkable, water coming out of a glass that is there or water coming out of a glass that isn't there? I mean, just in terms of what's more thinkable, you know, we, we, the, the explanations for the, the material causes of things today is in some ways laughable. Um, but Dante's trying to show that, that it, as an epic, as an, a serious epic poet, that there are ultimate um, sources of explanations for this thing that we can that we can enter into with reason and a reason that strengthens our faith. Because remember, the journey of the Paradiso is largely a journey of faith. The, the work of Virgil is over. The reason that we're getting now is a reason imbued with faith in supernatural mysteries. And yet she's making them all rational. Um, okay, so I just quickly to, to finish this review, turn to again to um, the remember I said Canto 7 is one of the most important cantos in the whole of the Divine Comedy this is where um, remember on this question of justice why it was just for Titus the emperor to destroy Jerusalem for the ancient sin you all remember that? yes? okay um, you remember that that Dante was puzzled why Justinian would have said a just vengeance was justly avenged. If it was just, why wasn't it just left alone? Are you all with me? Do, you, do I need to go back? Is everybody okay? Okay. And then on page 429, he gets the answer. Um, now listen to my reasoning, since once joined with its first cause, that's God, this nature was as it has been when first created, pure and good. God made nothing bad. Um, Adam was made good. But by itself alone, by its own act, having abandoned truth and the true light out of God's holy garden, it was chaste. Then if the crucifixion be judged, by, judged as the punishment of that nature assumed, no penalty could bite with greater justice. Because man had fallen. He'd spoiled his nature. Yeah. So it was just that Christ be crucified. You take that justice away and it makes the crucifixion meaningless. That would be a just act. Just as none could be judged as more unjust considering the person who, who endured it, with whom the other nature was combined. Did Christ have any sins? He was God. He was absolutely pure. So for us to crucify him couldn't have been more unjust. So the very nature of, at the center of our faith, is this paradox, this great mystery. And, and she concludes, now it should not be difficult for you to understand the concept of a just vengeance. This one event produced different effects. God and the Jews both pleased by this one. The Jews were happy for the wrong reason. So They denied that he was the Messiah, so it was glad to see him killed. God was glad, glad for his son's death because of the redemption it offered his creatures. 
Um, and then in Canto so, 8... So the destruction of Jerusalem was just then? Sorry? The destruction of Jerusalem was just <laughs> By the way, that was a pretty commonly held... I mean, as you can imagine, Christian position in the Middle Ages. On page 437, we get this whole outline of God's providence that God could have left man damned, right? Because he, 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 there's no way man could have atoned for his sin. He sinned against God. He couldn't give satisfaction. There's no way he could have done that. So God could have left man damned, which would have been just, or he could have wiped away the sin. To do that would have demeaned, taken away the dignity of what he did in creation because he gave us free will. It would have been a derogation of his own nature and ours. So he couldn't do that. Um, so it says... Um, Uh-oh, where am I? You were at 437 on yeah, near I'm, the bottom. Um, wait, is this my... Oh, sorry, I'm sorry. I sh- I'm, I'm, in, I'm 431, I'm sorry. 431 in the middle. God, given his limits, man could never make amends. Never in his humility could man obedient too late descend. As far as once in disobedience he tried to climb. Our sin was against an infinite God. We're finite creatures. There's no way we could have paid, made atonement, satisfaction. Thus it remained for God in his own ways, his ways, I mean, in one of them or both, to bring man back to his integrity. But since the deed gratifies more the doer, the more it manifests the innate goodness of the good heart from which it springs, God is perfect love. God is perfect love. So then that the everlasting goodness which has set its imprint on the world was pleased to use all of its means to raise you up once more. Between the final night and the first day, no act so lofty, so magnificent was there, or shall there be by either way. For God who gave himself gave even more, so that mankind might raise itself again than if he simply had annulled the debt. And any other means would have been less than justice if God's only Son had not humbled himself to take on mortal faith. There it is again. Mercy and justice absolutely resolved in God. One or the other. Mercy wiping it away, justice keeping him damned. What he did was show the the infinite goodness. Remember that line? The everlasting goodness which is its imprint. Since the deed gratifies more the doer, the more it manifests the innate goodness. Perfect mercy, perfect love, perfect justice in God. And he did it in a way to involve us in our own redemption. And we're asked to do the same in everything we do. So the choice for us is to, to stay in hell with all the horrible things we saw, to accept the burdens of purgatory, which I think is the church, the image of our life here, and the infinite joy that we're Dante showing us in the Paradiso. So let me stop here. Now I want to quickly run through the next cantos. Any questions here about, this is just too many, too many questions. This is so awful. Wish we had 45 more minutes. Sorry, just really sorry. Sorry I'm rushing too, but okay. Is anybody but Bob? Any <laughs> 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 questions? Thank you, Jim.
you on questions and me proposing uh, trouble. Uh, I don't know. Uh, like I said, you're the, I'm you're the, the troublemaker and he doesn't want his questions. I don't know. I just, I just, I, I did have one, one here on this, on this candle. I knew I should not have said that. <laughs> and I, I just go. Is there, is there why? You know, I, I, this particular. Where are you, Bud? Well, was on. Uh, well, was on the, uh, the, the introduction what on. Page? Uh, uh, what is it? Four, four thirty-three, the uh, canto eight, and I said, why is this? When I read this, is why is this not a recognition of? Of horoscopes and astrology, and basically in this uh, section that forms the end of it with with Martel here on the yeah, <laughs> and uh, on the bottom of that. I know when I was after when I was reading it, uh, he concludes by telling the person many uh, many men have gone with reading it. I've been for a while. Anyway, I was just <laughs> bottom of the page, that number yeah, two. Yeah, I guess it was note? in the. It was in the. So I, I made a note to myself here, and I'm, I'm looking at it now. Whether I is that what I is that what I meant? Huh? Oh, you're marking inside of this thing. Uh, yeah, right. It was you don't have a specific. Was in that, was in that, I, I, I wasn't. <laughs> I was. I was trying to try, through going through things come back quickly and. And reading it, and then I make I make these notes, and I meant to go back. No, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. No, I no, I'm, I'm sorry, Bob. I'm, yeah. I'm really because I just I wish yep. truly I can't tell you how much. I wish we had more time. No, no, that's, that's fine. I, it was just was something that struck me, and as I was going through, as as I was reading it, thinking about it. Let me let me let me take quick. Um, we we're going to complete the first um, third of his journey. In the deficiencies in virtue, and in um, in in the heaven, still in the heaven of Venus, his souls appear to Dante, 441. But he and I were born from the same root. This is Cunis. This is the woman I told you about, who had all the lovers and all the husbands. So, um, and remember, this is this is Venus. This is the erotic. I mean, um, um, if you remember the the when we saw. Uh, let's see. Uh, where is it? Um, this is where we meet Ray. This is where we meet Rahab too. Yeah, mm -hmm. on page um, 441, um, he meets Cuniza. Cuniza was my name. This is the middle of 441. Mm -hmm. Cuniza was my name, and I shine here for I was overcome by this starlight. She's more brilliant because of the eros. The erotic love in her nature. Um, that there's a greater ardor from her eroticism, or erotic love, call it that. But gladly, but and notice, and I shine here for I was overcome by this star's light. She was overcome by ardor, the erotic. But gladly I, may, I but gladly I myself forgive in me what caused my fate. It grieves me not at all which might seem strange indeed to earthly minds. This precious and resplendent jewel that shines here closest to me in our heaven has left behind great fame, fame that will live as long. That's her brother, Kay. Mm -hmm. And he says too, um, going over to 443, God can see all, Dante wants to question him, God can see all and your sight sees in him, I said, O Holy Spirit, so no thought of mine can hide itself from your true light. Nobody in heaven needs to speak because they already see 
They're so infused with light with each other, what the other person's already thinking. How can it be otherwise? We live in a temporal world, space and time, things unfold. They live in a sense of immediacy, present to God, even though Dante's approaching him. Your voice then, which eternally charms heaven, in harmony with those adoring flames that make themselves account of their six wings. Why does it leave my longing unfulfilled? I would not wait for you to ask of me were I to in you as you now in me. Now remember, I, I, on, this is on page, go back to 410. This is the first time I mentioned to at the top of 410. Dante, the English translation is, not the most godlike of the seraphim, not Moses, Samuel, whichever, I tell you, not Mary, equal to the beauty here. The Italian is, not the most ingodded of the seraphim, because nothing in heaven is there except by God's having created. So he's present. Let me put it. The, the, word, the word in the church fathers was perichoresis. Perichoresis. It's the indwelling of the Trinity. There's one nature, but they indwell in each other. All of the, by the way, all of the readings this last couple of weeks is in me, that they will know you, that I'm in you, and you in me. All of the readings have been that. The indwelling is supposed to be of our nature. We're Trinitarian. The, the, the way we are with the, our spouses should in some ways imitate the indwelling love the Father has for His Son and the two of them have in the Spirit. So nothing goes on here that isn't indwelling, in partaking. That's the first example. Go back to where we, where were we? 440? 443. 443. So the top line, God can see all and your sight sees in him. The Italian is, God can see all and your sight in him's itself. That's Dante's reflexive verb. I'm going to give you a sheet on this later so you can see it. But the Italian is, and your sight in him's itself. That's what um, Fouquet is saying in the, the, the two stanzas after that. Why does it leave my longing unfulfilled? I would not wait for you to ask of me, were I to in you as you now in me. Is that clear? Yep. If you love one another, how can it not be that you interpenetrate each other? By the way, the Hindus believe everybody's interpenetrated at the expense of your individuality because they believe that individualism is a sin. Yeah. Christianity, that's where we depart. I mean, I mean, along with Christ, but that's fundamentally, philosophically. Because they, for them, the other world becomes this all one huge intermixed mass. Individual identity is lost because that's the cause of sin. For Christianity, God made each one of us in his image an immortal soul. Our individuality is, the, is at the core of who we are as people. But our God is a Trinitarian God. So there's nothing we should be doing if we're trying to follow our nature, to go back to this, that shouldn't partake of this indwelling. I am in you in you. You are in me in me. We are in othering. Dante's going to be using, remember I said we're in a different time-space dimension. We can't use those categories. Um, this is going to be one of the things that's going to be a constant for everything that Dante's going to go on to do here. In the next two cantos, in Canto 10 and 11 um, and 12, Dante presents us with these two circles of the two orders, and both of them were the great reformers of the church, as you know. 
Um, in the first circle, you've got um, when he rises to the level of the sun, he's got um, St. Thomas appearing to him um, and introducing him to the um, to the souls who make up this crown, this circle, on page 452. And notice this. Bob and I were talking about whorehouses when we first began. You guys missed out on a really good conversation. <laughs> He's it. We're Thanks, seeing Bob. all these souls. Thanks, Bob. Thanks, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> there was a comic guy. Bob took off. Just, just know that. I mean, he, when all these other guys were. Then as, the, then, as the tower clock calls us to come to the hour when God's bride is aroused from bed to woo with matin song her bridegroom's love, with one part pulling, thrusting, and the other chiming, ting ting, music so sweet, the soul ready for love swells with anticipation. So I was witnessing to that glorious wheel moving and playing voice on voice in concord with sweetness, harmony unknown, save there where joy becomes one with eternity. I do not know of another several, a group of cantos that are so sexually suggestive. Did you all hear that? I don't rouse from bed to woo, one part pulling, thrusting the other, chiming, ting ting, ready for love swells. I mean, it goes on and on. Well, maybe, maybe the, maybe the. Uh, maybe that Alba Maria. Alba Maria was. The house was. Hey, why I can say that that puts a new light onto it right there. Here, wait a minute before we get up. Remember how erotic Venus was. Cuniza had, I think she had four husbands and several lovers, you know, mm-hmm. and she's forgiven herself. What is Dante doing? I think that what he's showing is how natural Eros is to us. God made us to love in the natural order. What we're, I think what he's showing us here is how natural that love is. It shouldn't be something covered up or you know, concealed. It's, it's of our nature. John Paul's theology body is an attempt to, I think, to give a healthy perspective on love in our time because the sexual disorders are so great in our time for us. I think what he's doing is, is, is affirming it and suggesting its sublimation, that it's still there transformed in heaven. So whatever heaven does transform, it's, it keeps what it did with it. I mean, when we, when we, when at the resurrection, when we receive our bodies, there still has to be something that recognizes our nature here because that's the way God made us. So I don't think this is an accident. Um, I think it's, it's Dante's way of reminding us of that, that we have a nature, that our sexuality is a major part of it. It's, it's the, it, it, it is a great gift and a great danger. It's, it's by means of that that we create. But it's also the, the most intense pleasure. Um, so I don't think this is an accident. I think it's a way of, of helping us to see that even though Dante's witnessing lights, humans, they, they're, they're lights. They almost they don't appear the way we do to each other. There's still something visibly carrying arrows, the erotic with them. And it's carried on in page 454, 455. He starts describing this man who took this lover. This is an erotic story. It's all in terms of this man taking a lover. And as it turns out, um, on bottom of 454, 
One of the two shone with seraphic love, the other through his wisdom was unearthed a splendor of cherubic radiance. Now I shall speak of only one. Who's the lover? Francis. On page 455. Only a few years after he'd risen did his invigorating powers begin to penetrate the earth with a new strength. While still a youth, he braved his father's wrath. If you know the story of St. Francis, mm-hmm. he, turned, he, didn't, he renounced his family and all of its wealth, took off his clothes in the market, na- naked, mm-hmm. <laughs> naked in the marketplace, unashamed, unashamed of his body, and gave up all of that. While still youth, he braved his father's wrath because he loved a lady to whom all would bar their door as if to death. He loved this lady in a, in a way that set him off from others who would have treated this lady as death. They would have kept it from their door. Before the bishop's court, on Coram, before his father, he took this lady as his lawful wife. From day to day, he loved her more and more. This is erotic. Bereft of her first spouse, despised, ignored, she waited 1,100 years and more, living without a lover till he came. Who is this lover? The lady poverty. God, this is stunning. And think about what Dante's saying. Francis loved this link, the, the beloved. Oh, beloved. Right? It was poverty. Because that's what Christ took on in leaving his nature to become a human. Um, alone, though it was known that she was found with um, Amicus secure against the voice which had the power to terrify the world, that is, she opened the, she wasn't afraid of her Caesar, that's um, alone, though known was her fierce constancy, that time she climbed the cross to be with Christ's poverty while Mary stayed below alone. The sweet accord, their faces spread with bliss, the love, the mystery, their tender looks, gave rise another. I, I, I don't know what you'd call this, but I call it erotic. But it's not self-pleasure. It's an eroticism directed at another. He tries, once he gets the Pope's approval of this order, he tries to convert the Islams on 457. And in a haughty presence of the sultan, urged by a burning thirst for martyrdom, he preached Christ and his blessed followers. But finding no one right for harvest there and loath to waste his labors, he returned to reap um, a crop in Italian fields. Go back to that line on the bottom of 455. The rest of her spouse despised, ignored. She waited 1,100 years and more, living without a lover till he came. The church, in Dante's mind, Remain without a lover because it was too given to wealth and it was too given to the city. I mean, we're back with the Gelfs and the Ghibellines and the struggles between church and state, yeah. But that intermixing, that incestuous relationship, and the struggle, the 1,200 years it took for the church to extricate itself, to get free, Dante describes in terms of a church without its lover, without Christ until St. Francis comes. Now think about the difference between this reform and the Reformation. Dante would never have broken off from the church. He is is at at least as critical of the church as anybody we've known in our history. Mm -hmm. Pope, (laughs) 
Popes make up most of the spots in hell. Yeah. <laughs> but is there a greater love? I mean, he was a great lover of the church. He loved the church tremendously. He hated sin. He hated the corruption, the greed, the avarice, all of it. Um, and that he puts this story this way to me is so touching. And then he ends by, by returning to Don. This is St. Thomas praising Francis. He takes on the stigmata in the middle of 457. Then on bare rock between Arno and Tiber, he took upon himself Christ's holy wounds. For two years he wore that seal. Put down, think now what kind of man were fit to be his fellow helmsman. So he puts, now he puts Francis and Dominic together as the two wheels of this chariot. And then he describes how the Dominican order, his own order, 458, has become corrupt. And his opening words, this is all in response to Dante's question, what, what Thomas meant on page um, 450 at the top, where all may fatten if they do not stray. Dante wondered what he meant. On 458, where all may fatten if they do not stray. That is, they all have enough to eat if they keep to the road. But the Dominicans the, and the Franciscans, the Dominicans have lost their way. And um, the next group to come up, this is the circle of the Dominicans, the next group that comes up are the Franciscans, and Bonaventure will return the compliment and praise Dominic, and we get the story of Dominic's life. Um, um, and it seems to me, interestingly, what, what, we, what we have, he describes them as two wheels of a chariot, and here we go back to this thing, that both of them were ordained by God for this work. They were great warriors. Dominic was a great fire, a great fighter. He, he took on heresies and argued, and the Dominican mind, St. Thomas, the Summa, they used reason to, to answer all these heresies. Um, um, Francis had as his sole purpose to clean up the church, to restore it to its unavarice condition, you know, it's ungreedy, it's unworldly condition. Um, so here in the middle of the Paradiso, Dante shows us these two orders praising each other in a dance, and it seems to me illustrating the very nature of paradise itself. Nothing goes on in paradise that isn't, that doesn't take the form of courtesy and praise and graciousness. Um, the second question that Dante had on his mind had to do with Thomas's claim, not only about fattening, but in the in the middle of Thomas's introduction, the fifth light that he that he identifies is Solomon, whom he claims is the wisest man of the world. And Dante um, wonders how in the world that could be. We're out of time, so let me just let me just briefly comment on what's going on here. Um, on page 467, um, Thomas steps forward again to answer that question and says, at the bottom of 467, God made Adam directly. Yeah. And Christ came down directly and took on human form. Um, that's different from all other human beings who are created by generation top of 468, and so you must have been surprised to hear what I said earlier of our fifth light, that he possessed a wisdom without equal. Um, now here is this 
thing again, I, I want to go back to this because this is one of the most important fundamental principles of the whole Divine Comedy, the relationship of the first cause to everything that goes on in the universe, because Dante knows it's the, if there's a God, and he made the, if, if he did, if he did, then there has to be some link between every scientific explanation we can give of things and the first cause, because he's behind it all. Open your mind to what I now reveal, and you will see your thoughts and my words join as one truth at the center of the round. All that which dies and all that cannot die reflect the radiance of that idea which God the Father through his love beget. What is that idea? The Son. God's conception of himself, right? He conceives of himself, is the image of himself is the Son. He's begotten. He's the idea. I've, I've gone through this before. We do that. We have ideas of something. We have an idea of ourselves. We have an idea of a paper. What, what unifies that paper? Whatever that idea is. And, and very often it's, it's an unspoken word. We can have 5,000 words in a paper. If there's any coherence, they will all go to that single unspoken word at the center. That unspoken word is everywhere in the universe. That's what he's showing. All that which dies and all that cannot die reflect the radiance of that idea which God the Father through his love begets. That's the Son. That living light which from its radiant source, the Father, streams forth its light but never parts from it nor from the love which triunits with them of its own grace sends down its rays as if reflected through nine subsistences and went through this before. Here's the first movement, the prima mobile, right? The prima mobile imparts God's power to the stars and to all the planets and the angels that govern each of those nine spheres, the nine orders of angels. Of its own grace sends down its own rays as if reflected through the nine subsistences remaining sempiternally itself. It can't change. Then it descends to the last but potencies from act to act becoming so diminished it brings forth only brief contingencies. The closer it gets to dirt or earth, the less perfect is its stamp. Um, at the top of 416, he talks about the wax with the seal on it. Nature can never transmit this light in its full force, much like the artisan who knows his craft but has a trembling hand. There was a perfect nature, but it, if the fervent love moves the clear vision of the first power and makes it makes of that its seal, the thing it stamps is perfect in all ways. That's Christ and Adam. But it's imperfect in some ways in all other things. Now it brings him back to um, his claim that Solomon was the wisest, and he and he makes clear at the bottom of 469. My words were meant to bring back to your mind the fact that he was a king and asked his Lord for wisdom to suffice the words. Remember he asked God for wisdom? He did not ask, this is so crucial, he did not ask to know so that he might count angels here or know whether necess with a conditioned premise yields necessity, whether an absolute premise yields a necessary conclusion, nor siedere primum motum esse, nor if without right angles, triangles. That is, he didn't ask for philosophy, philosophic knowledge. He didn't ask for scientific knowledge. He didn't ask for geometrical wisdom. He asked for political wisdom to rule well. If you recall the word I used, arose, it should be clear that only kings were meant, of which there are full many. Let this be leaden weight upon your feet to make you move slow as a weary man, both to the yes or no you do not see. 
For he ranks low indeed among the fools who rushes to affirm or deny, no matter which, without distinguishing. Too many of us jump to conclusions without making the subtle distinctions we should. We live in a black world, black-white mindset, and we impose that in what we do with our mind instead of making the proper distinctions. Because, and this is St. Thomas, fundamental, none of us can unify things if we don't properly distinguish them. So at the root of wisdom is this ability to distinguish one thing from another. And he's saying that Solomon had this in spades. The type of 471, nor should one be too quick to trust his judgment, be not like him who walks his field and counts the ears of corn before the time is ripe. Wait till you've thought about something. Let your thoughts mature on it. Meditate on it. So that the conclusion you come to benefits from the thought that you've done to prepare for it. I have seen a ship sail straight and swift over a sea through all its course and then about to enter the harbor sink. How many of us, that's, by the way, that's Odysseus coming home, for those of you who remember. He was offshore. How many of us get close to something we want, and then because it's so close, we get anxious and lose it. Um, Sometimes we're so close to the goal that we get nervous and rush at it. Grave, grave danger. There was a thing called 49, I can't remember, the psychologist did this study of of, um, airplane pilots in the Second World War, 49 49 flight syndrome, that they were fine as pilots going out to death, right? Every, every story. When it, when it came to the 49th story, because the next one meant they could go home, they were all terrified. Mm-hmm. Because they only had one more. Because if you have one more, if you make it, you go home. But if you don't, you know, you're right offshore. So he's saying, be careful um, in, the, in the judgments you come to. Take time and always be ready to make distinctions, um, to, to see the differences between one thing and another, because too often we rush to these conclusions without them. No Mr. or Miss Know-it-all should think when they see one man steal and one man give alms that they are seeing them through God's own eyes. For one may yet rise up and the other fall. Somebody can be a, I remember, somebody can be a sex trafficker still be redeemed. I mean, the, most, the things that we hate most, we still have to be careful of because that's somebody God still wants to redeem, even if we have to go to war over these things. Okay, um, I'm, I'm going to stop here. The next canto is a beautiful canto because in it, Saint, or I mean Solomon, gives this wonderful affirmation of the human body and the special kind of radiance and knowledge that will come to man when the body is returned to him. So there's another principle, it's like this principle that I've been trying to articulate here that has to do with vision and love and how how the two are related. We don't have time to do that now, but but Canto 14 on page 473 is really important. It's, It's a wonderful affirmation of the human body. Milton hated Solomon. If you read Paradise Lost, he hated Milton because, I mean, he hated Solomon because Solomon had a thousand wives. Mm-hmm. Milton thought that was a little bit overdoing it. <laughs> Milton wasn't very fond of sex. I mean, and this, he's very different. Da- you can know Dante loves the body, the human body. Yeah. And he loves Solomon. I mean, Solomon had these, <laughs> all these wives. 
Anyway, it's a wonderful affirmation that you embody. If you haven't read it, read it before we do the next. We're going to do Cantos um, 17 through 24. Is that right? No? What are we doing? Well, since you only got to 10 today. We got to 14. <laughs> we're supposed to get to 16. We're only too short. But, well, wait, by the way, 16 is Cacio Guida, Dante's great-great-grandfather, yeah. Yeah. castigating Florence in, in exactly the way somebody would today looking at our founding generation, generation after, the, after the Civil War with England, to watch what happened in that generation, the, the kind of sturdy, hardy men and women we produced, to what we have today. It's just full of criticisms of Florence. So we, there's not much to do there. This here, the one that I'm pointing, is the meat of it. And we're going to go on. We can't stop. Following Monday. I'm sorry. I that what I was What is going on here? Don't tell me that. We got all kinds of books. I don't think we got books everywhere. <laughs> huh?